Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Guys, um, it is so exciting to be up here, um, mostly because I get the privilege of bringing the Word of God to His church. Uh, the other reason is the first time I get to use the pulpit. Really excited about this thing. Yeah, we can lean on it, you know, it's good. Um, To be honest, guys, I have really enjoyed this series. Uh, We're in our fifth week of the Like Father, Like Son series, and it's been just awesome. I I love line-by-line teaching through Scripture. I love when we get to just take every word of the Bible and ingest it and consume it, Um, but the Bible is the most complex teaching manuscript that has ever been created, and when you take these 10,000 foot views, or you look at generation to generation, you see a whole other picture. You see more information, and this, this is what I love. Um, it's been delightful to see two very big themes appearing in this series. One of them is the utter failure of man, like, and women. We see these uh, sinful, uh, violent, Um, very selfish behaviors not only affect an individual, but we see them passed down from generation to generation. The Bible talks about how God is kind and he is patient, but there's this thing where he says, I will visit the iniquities of the father to the third and fourth generation of their children. There's these statements in Jeremiah and Isaiah where it says, when the father eats sour grapes, the children's teeth will be set on edge. And we see this massive theme of human failure. We see a theme of God's merciful intervention. We see him at moments coming in to basically save humanity from themselves. We see um, him bringing his wisdom, his power, his love, his mercy to make a way for healthy families to exist. Healthy families that eventually will become the family that he uses to draw the world back to himself, also known as us, the church. Um, Think of this as kind of a genogram case study of the early families of the New Testament, right? Uh, Two sessions ago, Karin, you did a phenomenal job. Um, When I grow up, I want to preach like Karin. Um, Karin, I loved how you laid out with Abraham and Sarah uh, just how God uses these tests of patience and obedience. They start small, but in God's masterful plan, he uses that to prepare us for the large tests. And Nick, um, he walked us through... Esau's selling and despising of his birthright. I'm going to summarize some of that in a minute, but he talked about when we're in states of discontentment, when we are, when we are bored, when we feel underappreciated, how we can act in ways that are not good for us in our future. And he mentioned something that I'm going to touch a little bit more on today about how sometimes those, th- those things can actually become who we are, that those moments can kind of solidify our character. I um, just want to uh, bring you guys up to speed on some of the details. We have so much story to cover today, and I got some notes in my notes about how to get through all this quickly, but really it's like five chapters of the Old Testament. You should preach like 12 sermons on that, but we're going we're gonna to push. But um, here are some details from this story that you may have missed if you weren't here last week. Last week we saw from the birth of Jacob and Esau this rivalry. Esau was the firstborn Uh, We saw how in a moment of impatience and hunger and desperation, uh, we saw his brother Jacob take (laughs) a super strategic position and swindle him or trade or purchase his birthright from him. 
He basically gets an extra 33% of his inheritance um, because he was hungry and he wanted a bowl of lentil soup. Uh, we see later how Rebecca, Jacob's mom, partner to deceive and um, lie and manipulate to the husband and father, Isaac, to trick him into blessing Jacob instead of Esau to pass on this blessing. And uh, we see Esau getting super pissed. He is <laughs> furious. Um, it said he was plotting to kill his brother Jacob. So, you know, any good parent um, and hero of the faith does what we all should do is run, run away, and not face your problems, right? says, uh, go back to the land of Padanaram, to my father Bethuel's house, find my brother Laban, and marry someone in his house. So here's what we're going to be focusing on this week, guys. This week, we're going to look at what happens in Jacob's life over the next 20 years. And we're going to see God do some of his finest engineering. In this story, we will see the invisible God be with his son Jacob in a way that he doesn't expect in order to transform him into a man who begins to understand what it means to walk with God. By the time we get to Genesis 32, probably not getting there. Um, Jacob is not a perfect man by any means, but he is a changed man. Uh, He is going to take this faithless, insecure, Enneagram type 3 with a massive father wound, a mama's boy, and change his very nature. Uh, This week's sermon's title uh, is Human Alchemy, Um, How God Turns Trash into Gold. Um, The title comes from uh, an author, J.H. Walton. want to give him credit. I did not come up with that. And just for those of you, alchemy was the the precursor to chemistry, okay? People tried to create a process in which they could take relatively useless materials like lead, soft metals, and to create a system or structure or ingredients that would transform it into gold. And this is what God does with humankind. And the problems that we're looking at today, um, I like to announce these up front. These are a little wordy and complicated, but here's what we're trying to address The problem we have that is very broad or overarching, we ourselves and our families and the children that are to follow in our succession, I believe are destined to a life and future of deep dysfunction and sorrow unless the mercy of God radically intervenes in our lives. To be more specific, our human nature and cultural values such as rampant individualism or freedom at all costs create a pattern of self-reliance that often puts us at odds with the will and purpose of our God, our divine alchemist. To summarize that, humanity is doomed unless Jesus rescues us, and our individualism and even our American culture can create characteristics in us that put us in opposition with the will of God, and I think we're going to see those present in the text today. All right, Um, here we go. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 28, beginning in verse 10. And so uh, we're picking up where we left off. He's told to go. He is now on his way, running from his brother Esau and heading back to uh, his uncle's house. It says in verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and laid down to sleep. Then he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth, 
with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you, sorry, I will give you and your descendants the land in which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and they will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and the south, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you, and, and I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid, and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And then early the next morning, Jacob took the stone that he had placed under his head, and he set it up as a pillar. He poured oil on top of it, and he called the place Bethel. Bethel. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, if God will be with me, and if he will watch over me on this journey that I am taking, and if he will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's house, then, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and all that you give me, I will give a tenth. That's pretty cool. Pretty significant moment in scripture. Wish I had time to talk about it right now. We'll come back to it later. <clears throat> So the story continues. It says that Jacob left that place and he went to the land of eastern peoples. And when he arrived there, this is, he gets to Padan, Padan Aram, and he sees a well, he sees shepherds, he sees sheep, and he walks up and says, do you know a man named Laban? He says, yes, we do. Is he well? Yes, he is. Great, good news. Just saw a vision of God touching down onto earth. He's arriving at his place. Uh, finds out that Laban's okay, and then along comes Rachel, his daughter. The, the people at the well say, oh, and his daughter's on his way. It just so happens that she is drop-dead gorgeous. That's awesome. And then he gets this kind of alley-oop opportunity to impress this woman, right? Um, they were either unwilling to move the very large stone away from it, or they were unable to, or they weren't allowed. And it says that Jacob rolls the stone away by himself, waters her sheep, kisses her on the cheek, and then tells her the story of who he is, where he came from, and he wepts. She takes off, goes back to her dad's place to fetch Laban. Laban comes back, and it says he embraced him, he kissed him, brought him home to his house, um, and heard his story. And he says this awesome thing. He says, you are flesh of my flesh and blood of my blood, kind of this welcome home kind of moment. Things are looking really awesome for Jacob in this point. And if we stopped here, it would seem like the moral of the story is that God instantly blesses shortcut-taking cheaters. <laughs> Seriously, it's like, he appeared to me, and look, everything's going so well. Um, heaven's gate, hot daughter, what could go wrong? So he sits down with Laban, and he says, you know, your family, I don't want you to serve us for free. Give, tell me your wage. And he says, Pay me nothing, but I will work for seven years for your younger daughter's, Rachel's, hand in marriage. It was normal to offer six, a lot of the commentaries say, so this dude is really interested. He's willing to spend an extra year, no problem, right? 
So he agrees to work for seven years, and then he tends Laban's flocks faithfully for those, and the Bible literally says that and says, those seven years felt like just days because of his love for Rachel. He is, I'm telling you, big rock, made it happen. I'll work for seven years. They went by like that. So they gather for the wedding celebration. They party a little too hard, apparently, um, because the evening was over. He takes his wife to bed, and then the Bible just says this. And there was Leah, exclamation point, the next morning in bed with him. I want, sorry, I'm not going to go down the road. It was the older sister who was less pretty. And he had just worked seven years for the younger, right? Um, and so Laban's explanation is, well, it's not really our custom to marry the younger before the older. That's how he explains it. He says, but don't worry. It's going to be okay. Finish this bridal week. Uh, with Leah, and then we'll give you Rachel, and then you can work for seven more years. Sounds good, right? We're starting to see that he really is the flesh of Jacob's flesh and the blood of his blood, that these two individuals are cut from the same cloth. So anyhow, the story continues. Things get incredibly interesting after this point. Uh, Leah and her maidservant Zilpah and Rachel and Bilhah are all given to Jacob. Okay? I would never, ever, ever recommend signing up for anything like that. And then this next section, I like to call baby wars. The baby wars begin, all right? They literally use the names of these children to talk smack to each other as they're being born. I'm just going to move very quickly through this. So um, Leah, in the Bible, says, was not loved by Jacob. We can kind of, that's, it's wrong, but when you look at the circumstances, you could see how that could happen. Right? He was tricked, swindled, wakes up, not his favorite person to be married to, technically didn't even choose it, but it says the Lord saw that she wasn't loved and opened her womb, so she gets to go first. Right? So we have Reuben. Reuben's name means to see, and the statement that Leah makes is, look, the Lord sees my misery because my husband doesn't love me. Next comes Simeon, heard, the Lord has heard that my husband does not love me, and he has given me a second child. Levi, now my husband will be attached to me, hopefully, right? And then last, uh, Judah, praise the Lord. Not, that doesn't, I think she got to a healthy place, and then she stops having kids for a minute, right? Okay, Rachel sees what's happening, and she says the familiar words of, give me a child or I will die. This is another one of those themes that we're seeing from generation to generation, this utter desperation, not for God, for a thing, for something. She has, she has an idolatrous heart towards being a mom, like over childbearing. It, it holds an unappropriate part, uh, place in her heart. Anyhow, so she comes up with the B-team idea. This is Bilhah. This was something that was practiced in that, that age. So he takes, she takes her maidservant, Bilhah, gives her to Jacob as a husband. And then, I love this one. This is uh, Dan is born. And basically what this means is Vindication! God is judged on my behalf. I'm on the scoreboard, all right? So, super awesome, baby wars. Um, next comes Naphtali, which means to wrestle, and this is literally in the Bible. Um, I have had a great struggle with my sister, and I have won, right? Uh, up next, uh, Leah is realizing the score is now four to two, so she jumps on the, the B team, except it's with Zilpah. Uh, and then Gad is born, and this is straight like winner's gloating. It means um, 
what good fortune. Look what good fortune I have. <laughs> Score is now five to two, right? Okay. Next, we have Asher. Look how happy I am. All the women will say that I'm happy. Six to two. We are running away with this one, right? Um, and really quick, there's this part where the oldest son, Reuben, finds these mandrakes. It was a root that was found, and it was, it was known to have aphrodisiac uh, and even fertility kind of properties was what the idea was. So who do you think really wants to get their hands on those? the one who hasn't scored yet, right? She's like, give me your mandrakes. And this happy lady that is apparently happy uh, says, first you steal my husband, now you want to steal my son's mandrakes? Apparently she was lying when she named Levi or Asher happy, excuse me. Anyhow, so they make this deal. She gets the mandrakes, and then Leah gets to sleep with Jacob again. And then Issachar is born. I think they were just running out of ideas. It means wages, hired. I hired the husband, so we're going to call this one wages. And then this uh, last child, the sixth child born by Leah, Zebulun. This is actually sad. It means dowry or marriage settlement. She says, now my husband will finally treat me with honor. I don't have time to get into that. Uh, with the score now eight to two, Rachel in her eyes is bringing nothing to the table and it says, the Lord remembered Rachel and opened her womb, and Joseph arrives. We just got the 11 of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what happened. That's where they came from. This is their origin story. Moving on. Jacob has now fulfilled his 14 years of service, and he asked to be sent back to his homeland by his, uh, be sent back to his homeland, and Uncle Laban strikes a third deal. Excuse me. How are we doing, guys? Doing good? Okay. Haven't lost yet. Great. Okay. Um, and he says this, don't go. I have learned through divination or fortune telling, dark arts related, not good in the Bible. I've learned through divination that I am being blessed because the favor of your God is on you. Don't go. And he says, okay, well, how am I going to do something for my family, this large family that God has given me. And he says, what are your wages? I will pay them. He says, pay me nothing, but for the next six years, um, let me keep the sheep's, sheep and goats that are speckled or spotted, that are striped, and I'll take the dark lamb. So as I tend to your flocks, he says this, this is interesting, and my honesty will testify to our agreement. You'll be able to come and check, and you will see that clearly these groups are separated, and then in the time, the 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 types of animals that Jacob is describing is the less desirable of them. So he's taking kind of the weaker, the less beautiful, and he says, I'll continue to tend your flocks, they will grow naturally, and this will be my inheritance, just as the Lord blesses it. And says this, Agreed, said Laban, let it be as you have said. Then that same day he removed all of the male goats that were streaked and spotted and all the speckled or spotted female goats, um, all that had white on them, and all of the dark-colored lambs. And he placed them under the care of his sons, and he put a three-day's journey between himself and Jacob, while Jacob continued to tend to the rest of Laban's flock. He screwed him over royally. Seriously, he took the one thing that he could have used to provide an inheritance, to provide financial stability. I mean, Laban is literally taking the only thing that he could potentially use to create something to give his family security. 
His family is who is Laban's daughters and his grandchildren. This dude. Fast forward 5.9 years. We're reaching the end of his 20 years. And we see that God is in fact with Jacob. And it says this. So the weak animals ended up going to Laban. And the strong to Jacob. And in this way he grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks, made servants and manservants. And now his six years is coming to an end. He is ready to go, and the Lord tells him that it is time. I am the God of Bethel. He appears to him in a dream, and he says, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed that pillar, and where you made a vow to me. Now leave the man at once and go back to your native land, and I will be with you. He waits till it's time for Laban to shear his sheep. So when he's going to have his head down, working really hard, unable to notice if he had left or not, he leaves through the back door. He flees again. He runs. And uh, at the same time, Rachel steals her father's idols, and they split. Picking up in Genesis 31, verses 22 through 43. And it says, on the third day, let, let, bleh. On the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled. Taking his relatives with him, he pursued Jacob for seven days and caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. Then God came to, uh, to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream at night, and he said to him, Be careful what you say. Uh, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead, and then Laban overtook him. And Laban and his relatives camped there as well. Then Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? You have deceived me. You have carried off my daughters like captives in war. Why do you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of timbrels and harps? Yeah, right. You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. You have done a foolish thing. I have the power to harm you. But last night, the God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. <laughs> now, it's kind of ironic as he's talking to him. Um, now, now, you have gone off because you, you long to return to your father's household, but why did you steal my gods? Jacob answers Laban, I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. But if you find anyone who has your gods, that person shall not live. In the presence of our relatives, see for yourself whatever, um, see to yourself whether there is anything of yours here with me. And if so, take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the gods. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he found nothing. After he came out of Leah's tent, he entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and he put them inside of her camel's saddle and she was sitting on them. Laban searched through everything in his tent but found nothing. Rachel said to her father, don't be angry, my Lord, that I cannot stand up in your presence. I am having my period. Dude, these guys are sneaky. So you see what I'm saying? Like they're just, it's, gosh. So he searched and could not find the household gods, Jacob was angry and he took Laban to task and he says, what is my crime? How have I wronged you that you 
that you hunt me down. Now that you have searched through all my goods, what have you found that belongs to your household? Put it in front of your relatives and mine and let them judge between the two of us. I have been with you for 20 years now. Your sheep and goats will not, have not miscarried, nor have I eaten rams from your flocks. I did not bring your animals torn by wild beasts. I bore the loss myself. And you demand payment from me from whatever was stolen by day or night. This was my situation. I love that he says that. This was my situation. The heat consumed me in the daytime and the cold at night. And sleep fled from my eyes. It was like this for 20 years. I was in your household. I worked for 14 years for your daughters and six for your flocks. And you changed my wages 10 times. If the Lord God, my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands. And last night, he rebuked you. And now for the first time in Jacob's life, we see a man that is beginning to believe that God is with him. How much time do I have left? Quite a bit. Uh, don't worry, we're just getting my first point. <laughs> point number one, when we don't believe God is with us, we act desperate and self-reliant. So when Jacob says, clearly God is in this place and I was unaware of it, I think that it's okay. Every moment before this, when you look at his decisions and his actions, I'm talking like, he covered himself with fur sitting in front of his dad to get a spiritual blessing. Are you sure it's you, Esau? Yup, it's me. Clearly, he was unaware that God was there. And when you look back at the story Nick told, he is operating under this system. It helps us to understand. We act desperate and foolish, and we try to take shortcuts. Guys, I have too much good stuff to get to. Let me just say this. Shortcuts always come with consequences. I get to talk to people about losing weight and <laughs> physical shortcuts. I'm like, they never worked. You might see something temporal and quick, but you develop a character that cannot sustain those types of things. Anyhow, shortcuts have consequences. And we also act foolishly when we don't understand that the Lord is with us. I mean, Keller, Keller has an interesting view on what was happening when Jacob was getting Esau's blessing. He says that that, that kind of ceremony itself was more of a technicality than something of, of concrete significance. And so we, we have Jacob sitting there, knowing his brother's coming back, knowing his dad is going to find out, and knowing that all of this is most likely going to dissolve right in front of his eyes, he is settling, most likely because of his relationship with his father, because of the favoritism that's in their household. He clearly loves Esau. That leaves a wound in this dude. That's what makes him a striver. And he just wants to hear his dad bless him, even if it's not real. He is settling for a trinket rather than waiting for the treasure of a genuine blessing from God. When we don't understand that God is with us, we act foolishly. Another way that we act foolishly 
is that we fight unnecessary battles or create unnecessary drama. Think of that, what Jacob did and the, the rage that it produced in his household and the 20 years that ensued after that. Completely unnecessary. Used by God and his sovereign will to accomplish everything he wants to, absolutely necessary. No. His human stupidity helped him make that decision and God used that and arced it for his good. And then, guys, when we don't understand that God is with us, we run and flee from battles that the Lord has already fought on our behalf. He, he learns this. Jacob learns this when Laban catches him. Okay, when, when he left, he had a three-day head start. The distance between Padan Aram and Galid, 300 miles It was 300 miles. He had to drive his herds 30 miles a day, which should have killed them. He was running. And because he's not carrying sheep or children, they caught up to him. And then when he stands there, and he's, he brought his relatives with him, I have the right to harm you. And he realized, but your God rebuked me. He put me in my place. And now we're going to part on good terms. When we don't understand that God is with, with us, we run from battles that he is already fighting on our behalf. And then, just really quickly, the next battle he has to face, he's going back to his homeland. Who's waiting for him? Rather than sneaking in, he announces his arrival. This man is beginning to believe that God is with him. Shortcuts and foolishness always have consequences. And my next point, self-reliance can cause massive consequences, and I'm not sure how many of these we're going to be able to get through. We can see Jacob's consequences. It is genius, ironic prejuxtaposition. We get to see Laban's activity and how he's working in contrast to Jacob being changed. We get to see Jacob's history. God says, look. Look at what I can do, and look what it's like without me. So we saw Jacob's 20 years of hardship. That situation that may have felt or looked like a curse was a blessing that cured this man. Our self-reliance can cause consequences, but God used his, the, the, the surrounding circumstances. He's doing the human alchemy on the, the heart and character of this man, Jacob. But I just want to talk a little bit more about some other consequences extremely quickly. Laban had massive consequences. His, his line continues in Scripture. It says that Laban was the father of Boer and who was the father of Balaam. That thing of like, I have learned by divination, this, this sorcery and this uh, fortune-telling, that, that grew in his family. And his idolatry and his greed grew in his family. Balaam was the... Was the non-Israelite prophet that was hired by the Moabites in Numbers 22 to curse Israel. That what he would say would seem to happen. He ended up blessing him. God will not be overthrown. But that was his legacy. And then Peter writes about him in 2 Peter 2.15, and he's describing these incredibly wicked people in their day. And he says, they have left the straight path, and they have wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, the son of Boer, 
who love the wages of wickedness. What we see in, in Laban's life, we see magnified through his line behind him. Those are serious consequences. We see in... I can only do one more. I have three. I got to pick one. <laughs> we saw Rachel's idolatry of childbearing led to the birth of Dan. Dan became the tribe that led Israel into idolatry and into captivity, and they're not even mentioned in Revelation. They're replaced by one of Joseph's sons. They're removed. The consequences and you just see these moments that seem to continue on. And I just want to say this. This may not seem fair. How could God let that happen? All he did is not intervene. He let humans have their way. And this is the future that I was talking about, what we should expect for life without God. It is hopeless and destructive, and it ends in idolatry and greed and murder. It is a big problem. Really quickly, point number three, God's blessings don't always show up the way that we expect. We operate with an Amazon Prime timeline. Let me just say that those Bethel moments and promises of God typically take longer than two business days to arrive. <laughs> Took 20 years. I was promised something 10 years ago. I believed it's going to happen, and I'm waiting. I, you, you cannot operate with an Amazon Prime timeline. Uh, Psalm 106 says that, there's this unique thing, it says that they forgot what the Lord had, uh, had did, what he did, and they did not wait for his plan to unfold. Can we be patient and can we, can we acknowledge that we live in a spiritually impatient environment? Uh, last thing on point number three, we don't understand the necessity of hardship. Real quick, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. We got to see Jacob get trained by the discipline of the Lord, and it changed him. Point number four, our hope in Jesus, the great alchemist, Guys, I, I shared the baby wars story so I could make this point quickly. That dysfunctional story was the family that God created to become the nation that would bring our Savior and that would be eventually a blessing to all peoples. That's where they started. That gives me incredible hope for children like Hudson, Augustine, Finley, Kiona, Fallon, Aaron, because all dads in all the kids this name are pretty jacked up. Me and Nick are saved by grace, and we've not as, but I'm like, if they can do that with them, how much more hope do we have? Amen, right? Preach it. Yeah. This is beautiful, guys. Um, his, his process, what God does, turns our doubting hearts into hearts of faith and obedience. This is hard to see, and I tried to underline it, but listen to this. In Genesis 28, it says, if God does this, and if God does that, and if God does this, then he will be my God. Genesis 31. If God had not, 
been with me the entire time. It's three chapters, 20 years. But three chapters, this is what the alchemy of God does. It takes doubt and unbelief and turns it into faith and conviction and obedience that gives us power to be a blessing to others and to experience the peace of God. Ben, you can join me. Come on up. We are landing this jet. Guys, we live in a different age than Jacob lived. In more ways than one. Before Bethel in chapter 28 of Genesis, there was another tower built. It was called Babel. Babel. In chapter 11 of Genesis, humankind gets a great idea. They're like, we are going to build a tower that allow us to transcend to heaven. And what God is doing in Bethel is undoing the self-reliance of Babel. So in chapter 28, he says, I saw a ladder touching the ground and reaching to the heavens with the Lord at top and this um, axis mundi, this, this point of heaven touching earth, angels coming up and down, was teaching man that you should not try to climb that on your own. And he's showing through Genesis in this story how God teaches us to rely on him and to surrender our self-reliance. But then we get to Jesus in John chapter 1 as he calls Nathaniel and he says, Nathaniel, come. And he knows some information about him. And he, and he says, how do you know that? How do you know my name? And he says, I saw you, you when you were under the fig tree, when nobody was around. He's just letting him know, dude, I see everything. I know everything. My father tells me everything. And he says this, you will see greater things than this. You will see the angels ascending and descending into heaven upon me. Jesus is landing this jet, this point, this sermon that has been stretched out through the meta-narrative of Scripture from Genesis 11 through John 1, that this whole process of getting access to heaven, that he himself is the foundation. And guys, we do. We do have a completely different situation. You see, when Jesus, when Jesus was crucified and he came to earth, he came back, he was resurrected, and he said, it was better that I go so that this Holy Spirit could come, that the helper could be with you. Guys, what I want to explain to you, like, you know how alchemy didn't work in the past? Like, they never figured it out. It's basically like the old covenant, and that we, we have the rules to play by, but not the power to actually produce the change. And it was believed in that time that the Spirit would come and maybe rest on someone and leave. And then when Jesus was resurrected, and when he left, Pentecost happened. And the prophecies about how God would pour his spirit on all flesh started to happen. That's why we lead this church that the way, the way that we do. We believe that God speaks. The Holy Spirit is like the, the missing ingredient in the alchemy process. And we have access to it. It is ours. It helped me write this sermon. It helped me realize how much Jacob and I used to have in common. It helps us believe that God is with us. It helps us endure 20 years of faithfulness until we are dismissed by God. We do not live in the same circumstances. 
guys, this morning, whether, whether if you feel like you've been doing the right things, but you don't really think they're going to play out, that's a lot of what Jacob was doing when he was first believing. He was doing the stuff, but still really sneaky, still trying to make it work. He didn't think things were going to go. If you're in one of those places, there is help for you this morning. The Spirit is with us. Or maybe you feel like you've been asleep. The Holy Spirit does what happened in Genesis 28, that thing of clearly God is in this place and he is with me. There's hope for you. Guys, I'm going to pray. Nick's going to come up and give us some direction. But Lord, I want to thank you that you did not leave us as orphans, but as beloved sons and daughters. Lord, I want to thank you that we have a hope that will not disappoint. I want to thank you that we have the power to be changed, or you possess it. Lord, I want to thank you that you can take the worthless parts of our identity, the cheap and the broken and the distrusting and the faithless parts, and you can transform it into something precious. And so God, this morning, I say, will you minister to your people? Will you highlight the things in us that you are actively working on now as we pray? I pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.